0: Okay. Um at the point that you were discussing consciousness, it appeared to me that what you were saying was that it was without anything metaphysical, such as a soul or spirit, which most of us and are enculturated to believe that there's gotta be something slightly mystical in this phenomenon <laughs> of consciousness. Uh-huh. And, Um, and I just wanted to be sure because in a sense, without that mystical, uh, how do we deal with heaven, hell, reincarnation, and rebirth?
1: Good point. Well, um, I don't think, uh, I personally don't use words like spirit or soul, but frankly, I don't think they are themselves problematic. In fact, I think the, the word citta uh, could be translated as soul, psyche, psyche, anima. The problem is not with the term, the problem is our tendency to reify what we mean by that, in was words, to make into a thing what we mean by that, and to posit uh, some kind of self existent, animating, self aware consciousness that is um, ontologically separate from the physical body and that's what allows rebirth karma uh, rebirth and reincarnation so um, the problem with believing in rebirth it's very difficult to do so without positing a mind body dualism or spirit body dualism and I think we also have to bear in mind that the Buddha really was not concerned with addressing those kinds of metaphysical questions. The, there are ten questions he refuses to answer, and one of them is, are the mind and the body the same, are the mind and the body is, are different? He says, don't go there. <laughs> what is, he's concerned with is how we respond to our condition as human beings in this world, here and now, in such a way that we do not aggravate and make our suffering, as it were, more intense, more unbearable, but we seek to live in a way whereby we uh, tackle uh, the questions of the quality of life uh, in our world as individuals and in society. So, uh, as for the question of mystical, um, again, this is a very fuzzy term. I don't see any contradiction between um, a view of the world that excludes or is not interested in heaven, hell, rebirth, all that stuff, but is deeply open to the mystery of life itself. So mystery to me is central to the embrace of our condition. As we open our minds, as we let go of some of these narrowing concepts we have of ourselves, we'll come back to this this afternoon, That releases, that falling away of grasping, craving, egoism, opens up the world as a profoundly mysterious place, opens up our experience as profoundly mysterious. And In other words, it opens up our capacity to, to honor and to celebrate in some senses that we don't know what's going on. The ego and its strategies are basically Uh, devices to pretend that we know what's going on that might give us a momentary security but it actually comes at the cost of uh, cutting us off from the mystery of life itself so we can call if that if such an experience is what you would allow to be mystical then it's mystical Um, and that I feel is utterly compatible with a view of life that is concerned entirely with the suffering of this life and this world and this planet that we're in now. Lady here.
2: Hi. Um, so as we were speaking before, there is in your the Buddhist view and your view, there is no unconditioned state. And how would that relate to the practice of shamatha and jhana? Is that just for refining our tool, our body-mind, so that we can have a better, uh, I use the word, perception of what our, our path is in terms of aversion, delusion, and greed, uh, limiting those.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How do um, you see shamatha and jhana and, and the un- uncondi- totally, un- <laughs> there is no unconditioned state?
1: Um, let's take this word, unconditioned. Um, it's asankata. When it's translated into English, it usually ends up as the unconditioned, and the unconditioned has a capital U. <laughs> <laughs> now there are no capital letters in Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, or Chinese, and nor are the definite articles the. By translating asankata as the unconditioned, the translator has revealed a bias, namely that there must be something called the unconditioned, which is very appealing, I think, for many people who are drawn to Buddhism because it somehow reintroduces something we can consider to be on a par with God. And uh, that's how it's used, very often. But fortunately, if we go to the Sangyutta Nikaya 43.1, which is called the Asankata Sanyutta, the Connected Discourses on Unconditioned, This is what the Buddha says. He says, monks, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to this. And what, monks, is the unconditioned? The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what, monks, is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed to the body. This is the, called the path leading to the unconditioned. So here we have another example, as we had with nama rupa, where the Buddha takes a term, in this case asankata, the unconditioned, which I suspect—I don't have hard evidence for this—but I suspect referred to Brahman and to Atman, which are unconditioned. God is the unmoved mover, or the un, you know, that which is for which there is no other condition. This is the unconditioned in and of itself. And rather than abandon the term altogether, he reinterprets it to mean unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by delusion. And this is characteristic of the Buddha's usage of language as entirely relational. He resists setting up, as it were, reified absolutes The unconditioned or the deathless is another term that's used in the same way. And instead regards, or let's say, asks the question, unconditioned by what? And gives an answer to that question. In other words, he's, instead of saying, in order to be enlightened and go into these deep states of meditation, then one day you experience the unconditioned. He's saying, can we lead our lives here and now unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by delusion. And that therefore becomes a suggestion or as an injunction to live in a totally different way in which these forces do not condition your thoughts, your feelings, your speech, your acts. And that experience is what is also called entering the stream entering the eightfold path, the stream being the eightfold path. So I'd like to go back to these texts that allow us um, a more process-centered understanding of the path, one which mirrors much more closely the Buddha's emphasis on impermanence, on dukkha, on anatta, rather than, is a, in a sense, succumb to this Uh, consoling idea that there is some kind of unconditioned reality out there somewhere, some deeper absolute truth that you'll get if you only meditate long and hard enough. That to me is a very static view of things and it's a view that suggests that liberation means somehow liberation from this condition, from this world, rather than a liberation from greed and hatred and a liberation to becoming free to live differently which he calls appropriate vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood. That would be my response to that. Um, microphone person, pick a hand. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, so how about those uh, states where we do experience rapture and it feels ecstatic, it's something beyond our experience our usual experience, can we use those um, in a non-craving way, a non-dualistic way, um, as part of our human experience?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Why not? I mean, certainly there must be, a, a, a if anything is rapturous or, it's a tendency we're going to become attached to it, and we're going to then, whether deliberately or not, find ourselves, Meditating in order to get into these really, you know, rapturous states—that would be very human. Um, but in the context of how I understand what's going on, such experiences give us a, also a sharpness and a clarity of mind that's less caught up in the delusive patterns and so forth. And if we can, if that those fra- frames of jhanic absorption and so on can then be directed towards vipassana, towards understanding dukkha, anicca, anatta. And if they allow us to refine and deepen our senses of that, then of course you know, that's, that's exactly, I feel, how they should be used. So yeah, of course, you have to find whatever works that leads you into that sort of insight. And the, but you mustn't forget that the insight is not an end in itself. The inside is what opens up our experience in a way in which we're freed from the grasping, the craving, the attachment, and so on. Again, not as an end in itself, but as what allows us to live from another perspective, one that is not driven by those things, as is stated in this text here. Uh, There's three, four here, a couple here. Gentleman standing up at the back. So let's go to the gentleman standing up in Thank the back you. with the nice-looking Hawaiian shirt. No, wait for the mic, please, because we're recording this.
3: Mr. Bachelor, <laughs> You're a heretic yet brilliant mind. Could you please explain to us, uh, in this first page, and to be, re- and be reborn it is to this extent that one may be born, age, die, pass away, and be reborn. I followed your thoughts about uh-huh. rebirth what are your thoughts regarding that word? Thank you.
1: Okay. Um, well, again, you see, I feel that this is very much the language of that culture and that time. And, um, and who knows, maybe that is the case. I, I don't have a dogmatic uh, view saying there is no rebirth. I can't make any sense of it. I'm not sure it's an appropriate way of thinking for the sort of world we live in today. But it may be the case. I don't know. And so I would take a line like that as, and again, it's a sort of a stock line. And one of the features of the Pali Canon, of anyone of you who's tried to read it, will find that there are what are called pericopes in technical parlance, which means stock passages that are plugged in and repeated endlessly. And this is kind of one, one of them, you see. It's a pericope. Um, so I take it to mean in, in the culture of our time that this is uh, to this extent that one lives one's life and gets born and gets, and dies and if there's something after you go on or whatever. But the, I do think the importance is uh, to concentrate on what is non-metaphysical in this teaching and with an open mind, with an agnostic mind that does not preclude by some theory, what happens after death. uh, We don't know what happens after death, and I think it would be arrogant to claim that one does. But I would also argue that any theory you have, whether it's saying there is rebirth, or whether you say there is not rebirth, both are um, uh, conceptual constructions that we overlay on what is essentially the greatest mystery of our life, that we are born and that we die, And any attempt to explain that, either by denying continuity, affirming continuity, is, I feel, um, uh, uh, equally our forms of denial of death, and to that extent, denial of life. There's one down here, one here. Okay. Uh,
2: Yes, uh, just to continue with this theme, there are a number of places that the Buddha does talk about reincarnation and karma in his cultural context. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you'd comment on the tone of it, because some of it seems motivational or sort of almost playing with people. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly of the dog Sutta, where he's kind of teasing one of the monks for uh, being a dog yogi and eating like a dog, and he's telling the monk, you're going to get reincarnated as, as a dog, dog if you keep that up or there's another guy acting like an ox and being mm. an ox yogi so there's a kind of playfulness and also the motivation of the term once returner mm. or you know it implies a consci- you know a consciousness mm. going from lifetime to lifetime but so
1: <laughs> well okay first point is that The Buddha, like Socrates, is someone who teaches in the context of dialogue. He doesn't write anything down. He doesn't seem to be trying to establish some overarching theory that he would impose on all students. Instead, he engages people in dialogue. And as such, um, will speak to the conditions and the beliefs and what's helpful for particular people at that particular time. And that, I think, accounts for a lot of the contradictions we find in the canon, where you say one thing to one person, another thing to another person. Um, the business of if you behave like a dog, you'll get reborn as a, bog, as a dog, um, <laughs> frankly strikes me as very simplistic uh, and um, crude as a way of thinking, to be honest. If, um, if we look at I, I'd like to cite a passage here which is in the Kalama Sutta where he talks of the the assurances that one gains through putting his teaching into practice. And he says the first assurance is, is, if there is another world, and if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. The second assurance is this, if there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still, right here, in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. Now, this is the only time in the canon that that passage occurs. But I find that much more, um, well, I have to say, agreeable and appealing. Uh, Because um, it's the only passage really where the Buddha does adopt a kind of agnostic view. But it fits also very well with his refusal to get drawn into metaphysical questions. I've mentioned some of them, are the mind and the body the same or different? If you don't answer that question, you don't really have a basis for believing in rebirth. To believe in rebirth, you have to acknowledge that there is something within you, spirit, soul, subtle consciousness or whatever, that will escape the breakdown of the physical body. There is some non-biologically based consciousness that can survive physical death. It's, I find it very, very difficult to make any sense of such a claim at all. It's, it's dualistic, basically. It's a, a double, it's like, it's two sub- substances. Buddhist traditions, as a rule, have ignored the Buddha's advice to, rem- to, to not pursue that question and have come up with theories, very, various different theories, as to what it is that gets reborn. Um, and that, to me, is much less, um, let's say, much less engaging than a view that we find here, where, contrary to what the normal view of the world would have been at that time, He's saying, if there is another world, if there is not, it doesn't actually matter. The, 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 the important point um, is to live here and now in this very life. Um, I find it an enormous tragedy and waste to base one's life in this world on a belief in something that one is, can actually never know for any certainty anyway. The one thing we know for certain is life has emerged in this world, on this planet, and there is suffering. That should be the basis for the practice of the Dhamma. It's the only thing we're certain about. I want to live a life that is founded on something I can have some assurance about, rather than something that is basically a metaphysical belief, that might be consoling, because I don't want to die, but is actually, I think, life-denying, in the sense that I'm unwilling to actually embrace the reality of death. There may be, this gentleman.
2: Thank you. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on the relationship between orthodoxy and practice. Uh, So I mean you...
1: Orthodoxy, Buddhist orthodoxy in this case.
2: So you critique a lot of the orthodoxy, but it coexists with a lot of different kinds of practices. And particularly, I have in mind the sort of esoteric Vajrayana practices. Mm
1: Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, um, I would question the way you're using the word practice. It it seems that uh, the word practice in the question implies some specific kind of spiritual exercise, Vajrayana practices. Presumably you mean doing, you know, development stage, completion stage, yoga tantra or something, or Dzogchen or something like this. I think that's a very reductive way to think of practice. It's not how the term is used in the early canon at all, where practice becomes actually the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. All of that is practice. And what's happened in in the history of Buddhism and what goes on, I think, even today, is that practice is identified with practicing and becoming proficient in a certain spiritual exercise. In other words, you're reducing the path to basically step seven and step eight, uh, mindfulness and concentration. Whereas the Buddha says that the magga is to be bhavana, bhavanad. The, the path itself is to be practiced. The word is used is bhavana. And it's telling that in, often bhavana is translated as meditation. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, for example, bhavana is gone. Gom means meditation, means going, sitting cross-legged on the floor and doing certain exercises. The word bhavana is applied by the Buddha to the way we see the world, think about it, speak, act, work. And I feel we need to recover a sense of practice that embraces all of our human behaviours and not be reductively identified with some spiritual exercise. On the other hand, I feel that what Buddhism offers, particularly in our culture, is a highly developed and sophisticated training in spiritual exercises. And that could very well, and I think that's what draws so many of us, because it gives us both something to do, something we can actually realize the effects of, and I would argue that that is actually the, 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 the very hub of the wheel. But the problem is, if that hub is not connected by spokes to a rim it's useless. However good you are in some of these exercises, if they're not integrated into your life as a totality they really um, have little value frankly. So if an orthodox belief system is one that gives you the kind of framework in order to pursue these practices, then uh, the, these exercises, um, and those exercises have a positive, transformative effect on your life, I have no problem with it at all. But um, I think for many of us, we find that some of these uh, classical Asian worldviews um, do not, it's not so much that I've, I'm saying they're wrong, I don't quite know how one would show that they're wrong. I'm saying they don't work anymore. When Nietzsche declared that God is dead, he didn't claim that God doesn't exist. He just said, we've got to a point in our culture now where that kind of language, that kind of thinking, that sort of discourse just doesn't work. And I would argue likewise that doctrines of reincarnation and so forth, that they're not wrong. That these I'm not saying these things don't exist. I just don't know how you would... Prove or disprove such things, frankly. What I'm saying is that it's a a discourse that doesn't work anymore for many of us. And I find a great deal of, um, of, um, of support for that idea by going back to passages like the one I've uncovered. When we go back to the early suttas, as I hope I've shown this morning, is we start to uncover a very different picture of what Buddhist practice is about a very different uh, understanding, a very different set of priorities than a lot of Buddhist orthodoxy carries. So in my own practice, and I mean that in the broadest sense, um, I find the closer I go back to the source, the more radical the teachings become. And I feel that as Buddhism uh, is transmitting itself into the West, into modernity really, then of course we need to honor and draw f- insights from the Asian traditions. There's, Buddhism has to be a living tradition, otherwise it's just academic. But at the same time, we need to engage Buddhist orthodoxy in a, in a conversation, in a, in a critical dialogue in which we really um, you know, confront some of these doctrines and try to rethink them in terms of a way, a language that would work for people in our time. I think the Buddhist teaching has an enormous amount to offer to this world, uh, to people who are suffering. Um, Yet I think that message is often, um, in a sense, impeded and hindered by the insistence that one, to do this Buddhist practice, has to hold on to certain uh, doctrinal views that many, many people simply cannot work with anymore. Uh, there. We need the microphone. Uh,
0: thank you, Stephen. I wonder if you could say a bit more about form. Form got a little bit short left shrift. out of the picture. Yeah. Uh, and I, I ask for really two reasons. For one, for one is a, a question of term and and, and translation. Mm. I mean, the last. A uh, word that would would come to a to a modern Europe to a European to translate matter would be form. Yeah, I know. So it's always a bit of a boggle. Mm-hmm. And the other is, it, 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 what you've been presenting is essentially a I would say a um, phenomenological psychology that's well designed to deal with vipassana practice. And uh, you know somehow we all we we have the the term. Matter, or we have form, which is not something that you know normally gets packed into a phenomenological psychology, mm. and yet you know it, it's there and it must be there for a reason. I mean, I suspect it has something to do with a processual or 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 organically based you know conception of life, but I, I don't really get it. <laughs> uh, it, it. Maybe maybe largely because it's such a, a boggle to have a have the word mm. for matter translated as form.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, um, you see, what, uh, I gave the example earlier of how the, this word contact is actually um, the same word the Buddha uses for tactile sensation or touch. Well, he does the same thing with what we translate as form, rupa. Rupa is, again, used uh, in, in other contexts as, what we, as the object of, of visual consciousness, is rupa. In other words, shapes and colors. That's rupa. Form, if you wish. And then he takes that word and applies it to the objects of all the senses. This is the problem. I mean, he, he could have maybe selected the word smell. Logically, it would have made no difference, except that I think it would sound even weirder than form. <laughs> so we have to... Um, Acknowledge that terminologically he has selected one of the sense objects and then used that term to apply to all of the sense objects. He's also using the same time word to apply to what we would call matter, or the stuff of materiality. Although whether he actually... Yeah, he says... The, he's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the four great elements, earth, water, fire and air, and the form derived from them, this is called form. Okay, this is the four the four great elements and the rupa derived from the four great elements. This is called rupa. It's it is an it is a it is a confusing language. I agree. I can't think of another term though that would work. And as a translator, um, both myself and many of my colleagues have struggled to find a word that actually means what this actually means. It refers. We have to maybe we just stick with the Sanskrit, but there's the same problem because rupa refers to what you see. And I suspect it, it, it's a reflex of the, uh, of, the, of the tendency to privilege visual consciousness as, um, uh, to, to describe our experience. I mean, we, we use visual language like vipassana, okay? Passana is to see. But of course it's not, and the the visual word, uh, to to see a visual shape. There's no reason why you could not have selected um, audio consciousness. But there does seem to be a a tendency to privilege the visual, whether it be the subjective insight or seeing, which of course is just a metaphor for a conscious experience that you can do with your eyes closed. But we're still saying, See, watch your thoughts, watch your breath. If you Think about it, it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> the, uh, but we, we, It doesn't trouble us, but when we say form, it does. So I think one has to notice that many, much of this language, possibly all of this language in a way, is metaphorical rather than to be taken literally. And um, at least to recognize that within the Buddhist tradition, we're kind of stuck with it if we want to translate literally, which we do. But I think what ultimately we are probably aspiring to in a wider cultural sense is through our conversations and dialogues with these texts and with these teachings and practices over time to evolve um, our own language for these things, a language that's not tied to the literal translation of Sanskrit words but one that actually speaks from and to our condition in the kind of world we live in now. There's some, someone here, someone at the back, there, boom, here. Uh.
4: Sorry for the technical question.
1: It's okay. In
4: the Abhidharmic view, the mm. topology of mind, there's something called Bhavanga.
1: Bhavanga-citta. Bavanga citta yeah.
4: which actually is existent. Mm. It doesn't fall, it doesn't go, it doesn't pass away. Mm. It is that which all things arise from and pass into. So I'm wondering, my question is whether this is uh, taking on of Kaivalya. Kaivalya Kaivalya is the gap in the Vedic literature, and it is that which all phenomena arises from. This is sort of, you know, Shankara Um. who actually had two Buddhist teachers. He Mm. sort of reworked all that Upanishadic Mm. knowledge and brought more of this fine-tuned uh-huh. view, uh-huh. so I'm wondering whether you think this was something taken on, because okay. this no. is not Nama Rupa. this is beyond Nama Rupa, Yes,
1: well, um, it, uh, bhavangachitta Chitta is a term you find in the Theravada Abhidharma, only in the Theravada Abhidharma, and it's usually translated as rebirth consciousness. In other words, it's a cheetah, a mind, that um, continues and goes on. They don't, however, in Theravada tradition, maintain that the world arises out of the bhavanga and returns to it. That you do find in Yogacara philosophy, where they talk of the Alia Vijnana, yes. the foundation consciousness, which is tied into a, a Buddhist idealist philosophy in which there is no matter. There is no form, there's no rupa. Everything is of the nature of, of citta or vijnana. And at the root of Vijnana is the of Vijnana, which contains all of the seeds of karma and so on, and that's what gives rise to the world. And that's uh, you know idealist philosophy. The, um, f- what I think is in, in striking is that the Buddha never uses the word bhavanka. just not there. So in other words, it's an attempt by the later community of the Buddha's followers, probably in the centuries after his death, to come up with an answer to the question, what is it that gets reborn? The Buddha refused to even address this question. For him, it was just outside the scope of what his concerns were. His concerns were, as uh, Elizabeth mentioned, phenomenological, or in the terms of the all. So I would suggest, really, that what happened in the evolution of Buddhist thought um, was um, a return, to some extent, to the classical metaphysics of ancient Vedic or Upanishadic tradition that gave rise to uh, questions, sorry, gave, gave rise to answers to questions the Buddha told you not to ask, <laughs> or suggested you don't. He says, "I do not declare anything about these things. What do I declare? four noble truths."
4: Although in the topology of mind, Bhavanya is that which thought comes out of and goes back into.
1: All right, if you want. But so fr- frankly, I find all of this I find all of this metaphysical. Yeah. Not my own experience whatsoever, and quite blatantly, an attempt to, uh, f- to fine tune and uh, somehow rationalize um, the understanding the Buddha had of the world. I think it's a falling away from the radical nature of what the Buddha taught and introducing metaphysical ideas. Thank you. Here, maybe.
3: Well, in the context of that previous question, I guess I should apologize for asking a very non-technical question. (laughs) I'd be interested in your reaction to something that I saw recently that reminded me of your use of the term deep agnosticism. Uh This was a bumper sticker, of all things, that said, I'm a militant agnostic, colon. I don't know,
1: and neither do you. (laughs) Ah, well, I wouldn't consider myself a militant agnostic. (laughs) Um, In fact, I find... um, I'm not particularly attached to any of these terms, actually. Agnostic, atheist, humanist, pragmatist, um, secularist. I think all of these are are varying various facets of uh, a non-religious perspective on life. I think there's an agnostic dimension an atheistic dimension, and all of them I think can be useful. And I feel that what Buddhism can offer is a a way of living in this world, which we might call spiritual, that is entirely consonant with atheism, agnosticism, secularism, pragmatism, and so on. Um, But I think it would be a mistake to over-identify with any one of those terms and then start you know, being a militant atheist, a militant agnostic, that I think is what the Buddha would call dittigata, you know, uh, opinionatedness. (laughs) That again, you you clutch on to one of these labels in order to somehow justify yourself. And that would be a mistake. A deep agnosticism, which I have used in some of my writings, um, is actually to try to acknowledge that the I don't know of agnosticism which I think is often code for, I don't really care either, (laughs) can be transformed into um, a mystical practice. In other words, the the, the practice in Zen, for example, where you ask a question, let's say, what is this? And you stay with that question in a state of quiet, still, concentrated awareness, and you open yourself up to what is this, to remain with the question that life is and to acknowledge that the underside of what is this is I don't know. That is deep agnosticism in which it becomes a, a formal meditation practice in which you, you value the importance of not knowing rather than in order to free oneself from the, the tyranny of knowing. But that's not militant, it's <laughs> contemplative agnostic.
4: <laughs>
1: yes, there.
3: At the risk of speaking to the tyranny of knowing, you've given uh, tantalizing openings to modernity, even as you're unpacking what you see as the most essential original teaching of the Buddha. So my question concerns what you see as the limits of the phenomenological program. In science we know that much of our experience is Mm non-conscious. And our perception often arises from non-conscious processes Mm -hmm. which we can demonstrate with instruments that were not available Mm. 2,500 years ago and, to my mind, are not available today on the cushion, though that's an area of investigation. Mm. How do you see this living tradition in modernity?
1: The living tradition, you mean
3: Buddhism? Yes. Mm. Buddhism, as it shifts, because in our experience, we actually have the sense that Buddhism is coming into science, Mm. and science Is coming into Buddhism. Mm. There are people who sit where you are sitting and cite research that didn't exist ten years ago and this constituency didn't feel the need to have that evidence because Mm. the practice was fulfilling. Now we have a cultural shift that wants Mm. evidence on the one hand and questions the methods by which that evidence
1: Mm. is gathered on the other. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't have um, uh, a straightforward answer to it. It's not but a straightforward. It's question. not straightforward. <laughs> um, but what I do value is dialogue. And if we look historically at how Buddhism has, uh, in a sense, found its way into non-Indian cultures, and I'm thinking particularly of China, then um, what emerges... Uh, as Chinese Buddhism is the result of a dialogue and a conversation, in this case with Taoism as a kind of spiritual tradition, Confucianism as an ethical tradition. And through that interaction emerges something called Chinese Buddhism, or let's say Zen. Zen is a very good example of something for which there is no clear antecedents in India, although Zen tradition likes to pretend that there are because it needs its lineages and so on. But it actually, it's the Chinese genius interacting with the Indian genius and generating something entirely new. That's now become another orthodoxy, of course. But no, I, don't, I think that's probably unavoidable. And I would see a similar process occurring in the dialogues between Buddhism and modernity, or let's say science, that um, the great... For, for me, what's exciting about being alive as a Buddhist in this culture is the um, possibilities that can emerge out of these dialogues that are operating on many fronts, with psychology, with science, with uh, modern, say, social and political theory, on many, many levels. And I have a certain confidence and a certain faith, I suppose, that uh, the Buddha's message can come alive, can be... um, uh, can be a a very vital interlocutor, if that's the right pronunciation, with these other disciplines that obviously were not existing at the Buddhist time. And what emerges is something we cannot foresee or predict. But clearly it won't be what we know of Buddhism today. It'll be something else. It may not even use the B word anymore. (laughs) Um, It could be that we'll have to go beyond Buddhism. And I would hope that that would be of an element within um, the emergence of a culture which is not um, either of East or West anymore, but begins to generate a language that in some senses is truly global and speaks to the human condition wherever it is, whether it be in Tibet or whether it be in Rio de Janeiro. One more question at the back and then we'll have to stop
5: i've uh, thought of bhavana as mm-hmm. cultivation rather mm-hmm. than practice mm-hmm. so we cultivate right view right understanding mm-hmm. right speech et cetera. and i think the word practice has such a western mm-hmm. bias you know like we're we're doing something whereas cult and cultivation is doing something mm-hmm. too but it has a different feeling mm-hmm. And also, the um, for perception, I wonder whether recognition might not be more apt mm-hmm. because you didn't, if you were Chinese and didn't know English, you couldn't recognize mm-hmm. the exit sign. And then one last thing about uh, rupa. I wonder whether there just wasn't a word for what we understand today as the vibration of subatomic particles uh-huh. of, the, of the body just being energy. Mm. And so form was something we saw, but there was no term for what was actually happening. Mm. You know, that beyond matter mm. is the vibration of energy.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I actually translate bhavana as as cultivation. Uh, I think that is the best translation. But um, I also feel that if, since we use the word practice all the time, we have to ask the question, well, what is the, the Pali term that represents best the word practice? And I would say it's bhavana. But bhavana, I think, is... Bhavana literally means to bring something into being, which I think is a beautiful idea. It also has... um, It's a metaphor of organic life, too. In other words, you cultivate a plant, let's say. You create the conditions for a a seed to grow into a plant. And that is missed. and I agree with you, in the word practice, which does... Not only does it have a, a bias about just doing something it also sets up an opposition with theory, practice and theory, for example. In other words, um, and that I think is, again, built into the, the, this uh, choice of using the word practice. And often that is often opposed to a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-theoretical. I'm not interested in theory, I just want to practice, people say. Since we're lumbered with the word practice, we have to. Um, I would try to redefine what we mean by it, and I would use bhavana as the best starting point for that. But I think cultivation is by far more uh, useful than practice. I agree with you. So let's all agree now. We're never going to use the word practice. For that. <laughs> Now, the second point... Isn't
5: that because he was speaking from an agricultural society? Yeah, exactly.
1: Absolutely. Um, The Buddha speaks in the... He draws, when he speaks metaphorically, which he does a lot, inevitably he draws from the experiences people would have had in a 5th century BC agrarian society. And um, going back to your last question, again, he wouldn't have then spoken in terms of subatomic vibrational energies or whatever, because that wasn't the way the world was um, but on the other hand too I think phenomenologically at least um, I don't know to be honest I, I, um, it's true that in meditation as one goes into one's body yeah. one becomes very attuned to the sensations and the vibrations and so forth and so on but that's yeah. really just referring to what would be called sparsa the physical experience um, perhaps that's a metaphor that speaks more directly to our current situation but it's still limited as is Rupa that it's only it's privileging one sense over others whereas the all or in the practice of, of awareness meditation um, we're seeking to be give equal attention to all of the sense experiences and the problem I think is we don't have a word that covers them all. We don't have it in... the idea of vibrations is, is, is again, limited, as is the word rupa. We might prefer one to the other, but the fact is we risk missing the point that we're trying to embrace the totality of our sensory experience, which cannot be reduced either to vibration uh, nor to visual form. So as long as we bear that in mind, then I think we should be safe. And what was the second point you made? I forgot. Perception. Perception. Yeah, recognition is certainly a perfectly adequate translation of that. Um, I think in other contexts, as I've used recognition. I've also used a discernment, I think is quite good. Um, again, it's one of these terms for which there is probably no exact English term that is a precise overlap. This is the problem, um, is that... We st- and I've, this, As a translator, this has been something I've struggled with for 40 years, is endless discussions with fellow translators arguing as to which is the most appropriate English word for X. The problem is, in most cases, there is no English word that captures the range of meanings in a Pali Sanskrit Tibetan word. So all, every translation will be inexact and will, will fail at some level. And I think the op- this happened, exactly the same thing happened in China. When Buddhism, Buddhist texts were first translated into Chinese about the 2nd, 3rd century AD, the Chinese naturally and uh, chose Taoist terminology. So, for example, Nibbana was translated as Wu Wei, you know, non-action, the Taoist idea. And... Um, The problem with that was that over time Buddhist teachers began to realize that the Chinese were in a sense understanding Buddhism as just a variant on Taoism. And so the great translator Kumarajiva who lived in the 5th century and who basically set the template for all subsequent translations is that he decided to domesticate the uh, Sanskrit words. So for example um, the word Zen in Japanese is Chan in Chinese, which is a homonym for the Pali word Jhana. Jhana becomes Chan, and, or, and instead of translating Nirvana as Wu Wei, they, trans, they, they just chose a homonym, Nye Nirvan, Nirvana, Becomes nirvana, which actually, if you look at the two characters, is something like field house or something. It doesn't actually mean anything. They just chose characters that had the right sound for the Chinese for the Sanskrit word. And this is happening in the West. Um, I would like to domesticate the word dukkha rather than use suffering, for example. And, pos- and it is. I mean, we use the word karma, karma now, samsara, Nibbana, with they've in the English dictionary. So if we extend that project forward, we might get round these problems by introducing words like sanya and rupa, rather than try to find an English word that invariably won't fit. And it'll give rise to all sorts of questions like the ones we've just been addressing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to stop now. Um, It's 20 to 1. Let's meet again here at uh, no it's not tw- is it 21 yes. Yeah, then we'll meet here again at two. Please enjoy your break. please use the time to get to know one another. don't if you want to be silent and contemplative, just go somewhere quiet. but please enjoy your each other's company and we'll meet together promptly at two. Thank you.
3: Uh,
1: there's some announcements? Should you do them now Katie will do the announcements afterwards, meaning at 2? At uh, at 2
4: o'clock.
1: At 2 o'clock, please be here for Katie's announcements. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.